Joshua fought the battle at Jericho. Oh, or so we sing. But upon closer examination of the passage, we see that this battle was the Lord's. So we're going to read about it and glean what we can from this reading. I'll be reading from Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, and then also 15 through 20. Now Joshua, sorry, now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse, and the people will go up, every man straight in. So they do this for six days in a row. Now to verse 15. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpets sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, When the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. The city of Jericho was a stronghold that 40 years earlier had given the people of God pause from taking the promised land. They saw this walled fortress and thought, there's no way we are going to take it. They thought it was impossible. Now, are there any impossible things in your life? Some of these impossible things the Apostle Paul calls spiritual strongholds. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. These strongholds can be demonic strongholds or cultural philosophies or isms that are contrary to God. A few would be like atheism or naturalism, that all of reality can be explained only by natural means. Theological liberalism, which at its root 
says that the Bible is only written by men, and so we pick and choose what part of it we want to follow. False religions that set themselves up as alternative ways to salvation outside of Christ are strongholds. And so is the general darkness and sin you find in particular cities around the world. We had a, a missionary that's going to Macedonia, Todd uh, Wheaton. Um, he was in Morocco. They're now going to go to Macedonia as part of the church planting team. And when he said, he said, when I went to Macedonia, I sensed the same spirit of oppression that was over that country, Morocco. I experienced the same thing in Macedonia. And so these are strongholds. Now, strongholds might seem impossible to overcome, but like Jericho, they can be overcome by the power of God. Now, in overcoming the stronghold of Jericho, God gave Israel a strategy that to us just did not make sense. God told them to walk around the city once for six consecutive days and then return to camp. The city was not all that large. It was uh, 200 square yards. So if you laid a football field end on to end, that's 200 yards. That's how long and how wide it was. If you walked around the perimeter, that's 800 yards. If you ran track, you know that's about a half a mile. It was possible for the Israelite fighting men to surround the city, and it would not take a long time to walk a half of a mile. But on the seventh day, they were to walk around the city seven times, and then they were to blow their trumpets and shout, and then the walls would collapse. Now, this doesn't sound like much of a military strategy, does it? We would not come up with it. But this was God's strategy, and that's because his strategy was a spiritual one. In the ancient Middle East, a king would trace out the boundaries of his kingdom or of his territory. And so here was Yahweh, the king of Israel, represented on his throne, which was the Ark of the Covenant, and he walked around that boundary for seven consecutive days, seven times on the seventh day. The number seven is the number of completeness and perfection. And so by going around the city, God was saying, this is mine. I mark it as my own. Doing this also took great faith on the part of Israel. Imagine Joshua waiting for the battle strategy from the Lord, and the Lord tells him to walk around the city and blow trumpets. But Joshua believed. Joshua obeyed, and the people obeyed as well. God's strategy is not always ours. So on the seventh day, Joshua commanded the people, when the trumpet sounds... Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and all that is in it is devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab and all who are with her shall be spared because she hid the spies. And so the trumpet sounded, and the people shouted, and the walls collapsed. So let's do this. 
and the walls collapsed. Whoever said 11 o'clock service is not as loud, is louder than the 9.30. But the stronghold is brought down, not by the weapons of the world, but by the power of God. Now let's go to the New Testament where strongholds are mentioned again in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 2 through 5. You can go to that in your Bibles, and I have also put it on your screens. I will read that passage, and then we're going to go back and explain it. This is Paul writing the church in Corinth. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be, towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So let's go back, and we're going to take this verse by verse. We'll start at verse 2. I beg you that when I come, Paul's away from Corinth, but he's coming, that I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Now, in his first letter, he corrected the church for several sins. Amongst them was gross sexual sin in the church that the church allowed and did nothing about. In one such instance, Paul says, you got to put that man out of the church until he repents. But it looks like the Corinthian church was continuing to compromise. And so Paul saying, when I come back, I hope I don't have to be as bold as I might have to be in confronting this sin. Then verse 3. For though we live in the world, and that's Corinth, we do not wage war as the world does. So how does the world wage war? Well, we kill people, we shoot people, we bomb people. Or on the political stage, whether that politics is church politics or national politics, we undermine, we sabotage, we, we just uh, stubbornly refuse to do anything. That's what the world does. But then Paul writes, the weapons that we, those who belong to Christ, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. That word world in the Greek is flesh. So flesh is anything that naturally just comes out of our thinking or or our bodies. It's flesh. On the contrary, they, those are the weapons, have divine power to demolish strongholds. So what are the strongholds? Verse 5 tells us what those are. We demolish arguments. The Greek has the word thinkings. We don't really have that word in English, but it's ways of thinking. And every pretension, you know, the the definition is the same in English and, and in Greek. Here's what a pretension is. is an attempt 
to make something that is not the case true. So a classic example of pretension is the emperor's new clothes. Remember, people, because of political correctness or pressure, uh, were saying of the king's new clothes, aren't they beautiful? But there was a, a little kid who didn't feel the public pressure, who was not politically correct, and he said, hey, wait, the emperor's not wearing any clothes. The people were practicing pretension. The little boy was not. So we demolish arguments, thinkings, or pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And this is the knowledge of what God has shown us. And we take these thinkings of the world and we bring them into subjection and into obedience to Christ. That is, no matter what we hear, whether it's from our political parties or from the thinkings of the world, we run it through the grid of Scripture and we bring that thinking into obedience to Christ and modify it accordingly to what Christ would say, not manipulating it to make it say what we want it to say. And so one of our weapons is to think scripturally and to declare that to the world. The other weapon is mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6, where God says, here's your weapon, here's how you do battle. You put on the armor of God and you pray at all times in the Spirit. And I believe we can use the Psalms to do that. I'll illustrate that for you after the service. So now let's think of strongholds. Some are personal and some are societal. Personal strongholds. There's a person who was caught in addiction. But it's more than just a physical addiction. There seems to be an extra strength to it. There could be a spiritual component where Satan has this person in its grip. They will never be free of it till the spiritual stronghold is broken. Maybe there's a couple and they're struggling in their marriage and it goes beyond just communication issues and pressures of the world. They're just always at each other. What is it that's always eating at them? There could be a spiritual component. Suppose you have a child who's in a, a downward spiral. Now, kids have a tough time living in this world. Sometimes their depression is caused by uh, chemical issues. But if their thinking starts becoming self-destructive, kill yourself, cut yourself, starve yourself, who tells us to do those kinds of things? There's a spiritual component to it, and it's broken by prayer. Those are personal strongholds. There's also the philosophies and the thinkings advanced by the world that are contrary to the Word of God. And so we see the world today redefining marriage. When God says a, a husband will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. We see the world con. Uh, contrary to what God says, that God made man in his own image, male and female, he created them. We see 
the world undermining what it means to be a human, saying that if your baby's born uh, one minute after it's born, it's a human. One minute before it's born, it's not. These are societal strongholds. Now let's get back to the Battle of Jericho. That stronghold came down not by worldly or fleshly means. It came down by the power of God through the obedience of the people. The walls came down and the Israelites entered from every side and they destroyed the city. Now we're going to give pause there because sometimes when people read that God commanded the destruction of the city, people question the justice and the goodness of God. So I'm going to address this subject. It's going to be a little bit of a tangent. I've addressed it before, but I'm going to do it again because people since then have been asking me, now tell me that again. So here it is. First of all, the conquest of Canaan was part of God's promise to give his people the land. And the Canaanites were not going to willingly hand their land over. That would be like Mexico saying to us, hey, give us back the land that you took from us way back in 1848. Texas, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, Colorado, and so on, right? What would we say to that? Forget you. This is what the Canaanites would have said as well. Furthermore, This was not just God bullying people off their land, but it was an act of God's judgment. Here's what God said to Abraham 400 years before this happened. God said to Abraham, No, for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. That was Egypt. And they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. Your descendants will come back here in the fourth generation for the sin of the Amorites, that's who the Canaanites were 400 years earlier, has not yet reached its full measure. So God drove out the Canaanites because their sin had reached its full measure. He waited 400 years for them to repent, and they did not. And this was the time of God's judgment. This is what had happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Their sin had become so great that God says, I'm going to destroy those cities, but I will spare those cities if I can find 10 righteous people. Just 10. But ten righteous people could not be found. Lot and his wife and his family were spared, but those cities were destroyed. And by the way, those cities are not very far from Jericho. They are part of their collective memory, a reminder that the God of the universe exercises judgment. And now let's look at what the Canaanites were like. Their religion was a fertility cult meaning the earth was fertile if the gods were fertile. But the gods had to be aroused to procreate in order for the earth to be fertile. And so they recruited girls 
forcibly removed them from their homes at a young age and forced them to be temple prostitutes where they would perform sexual acts with men who went there to worship to arouse the gods. That's their religion. Furthermore, if you wanted their god Moloch to prosper you, then you made a great sacrifice to Moloch. And so the Canaanites practiced uh, infant infanticide. They, they would sacrifice their infant children and roast them over a fire as a burnt offering. Later on in Joshua, Joshua says that the gods of the Canaanites are demons, and so they worshipped demons. This was who the Canaanites were. This permeated their culture. It was the time of God's judgment for how does God, who is holy, put up with this? Furthermore, God did not want his own people to be contaminated by this culture. He wanted them to be holy. Now, some get the idea from the conquest that the Old Testament God was into destroying people. But Canaan was a unique situation. There were other times when people were antagonistic towards Israel, and God did not destroy them. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 17, Israel comes to the border of Edom. Moses asks permission of the king, can we pass through your country? We won't eat any produce. We won't drink from any well. We just want to pass through. And the king of Edom says, no, if you come through our land, I will attack you. What does God say? Go around Edom and do not pass through it. It added 200 miles to their trip. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9, the Israelites were to pass through Moab, and God warns them, do not harass the Moabites or provoke them to war, for I will not give you any part of their land. So God spares countries and cultures. God protects some, but he also judges some. There comes a time when God says, Enough is enough. If we live in a moral universe, then God has to judge evil. If there, uh, the alternative to that is God doesn't care and God does nothing. But we have a God who is holy. And the normal way that God works is he gives people time to repent. He gives them a long time to repent. And when they repent and call on him for mercy, then he spares them and actually blesses them. This is what we saw with Rahab, who appealed to the mercy of Yahweh and was spared. Furthermore, the destruction of the Canaanites is not the norm in Old Testament history. From Abraham to the birth of Jesus is 2,500 years. The conquest takes 25. 1% of Old Testament history. Like I said, what we usually see is God pleading with people to repent. And then relinquishing from judgment and blessing them when they do. Furthermore, the conquest of Cana is a war motif. 
It prefigures the advance of the kingdom of God that forces, that, that advances forcefully in the earth, not by the sword or by worldly means, but by the, the way of presenting our thinkings and thoughts to the world and accompanying that by prayer. This war motif is expressed by Christian authors such as C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia and J.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. And if you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, remember the words of Sam where he says to Frodo, Frodo, there is evil in the world and the good is worth fighting for. Now let's bring this lesson home. God judges nations. But he spares nations for the sake of the righteous. And if the church ceases to be righteous, what is there that can stay the hand of God? And so the church, above all others, needs to be righteous and people of integrity and mercy and love and compassion. We also need to take down strongholds. And we do that through prayer, and we will model that after the sermon. Along with prayer, we present our thinkings against the thinkings of the world. So let me tell you what we are for as the kingdom of God. We are for redemption, where God takes the brokenness, the mistakes, and the sins of our past and turns them around so that we are saved and are his and enjoy his goodness. We are into healing. Sin wounded you. People who should have loved you did not love you, but instead hurt you, and you were wounded. But your woundedness can be healed by the power of Christ. We are not into being slaves. We are not slaves to addiction, slaves to bitterness, slaves to fear, or slaves to our passions. But we are set free by the power of God to be who we were created to be. We value human life because all humans are made in the image of God regardless of color or religion or nationality or age or sex or stage of life. If a human is human one minute after they're born, then they're a human one minute before they are born. And human rights, that's a Christian idea. That comes from the scriptures that we are made in the, human, in the image of God and are entitled to certain inalienable rights. That's scripture that says that. Darwinism, the survival of the fittest, that doesn't give us dignity. Life coming about by random chance, which is naturalism, that doesn't give us dignity. Here's what gives us, gives us dignity. We are made in the image of God. And so you're worthy of dignity and equal treatment under the law. We are into truth because there is absolute truth. I was in college about 40 years ago, and already the leftist elite were saying there's no absolute truth. We can't know truth. We have to deconstruct truth. 
They've been preaching that for years now. Until now, when we have a, a president and fake news that plays loose with the truth, and now they're saying, hey, what about truth? God insisted on truth all along and has told his people to be people of the truth. And we also look at the world and see that it's fallen. People have free will. We use our free will to sin, right? God allows you to sin. And when we sin, we bring misery to ourselves and on others. And so we have a world where we see poverty and oppression and injustice. These things are not corrected in the flesh. They're corrected by people who have had their hearts renewed by the Spirit of God who are under the rule of Christ and go out in that love with that message and actually bring redemption and change to the culture. We also see that all humans die. And if this life is all there is, then ultimately life is meaningless and hopeless. But we have a Savior who rose again from the dead, and there's irrefutable proof for it. So that even if a man dies, if he believes in me, yet shall he live. This is our proclamation to the world. This is how we bring down strongholds. This is how we advance the kingdom of God. Eastminster, on its best day, does not retreat. We are not a country club, but we exist to advance his kingdom in the city and in the nations. We don't hole up in our stronghold. We take down strongholds. This is Eastminster on its best day. And our best days are ahead of us. Let us pray. Lord, you are a mighty fortress, and our confidence is in you. And we're going to do some spiritual warfare, and we're going to use the Psalms to do that. So if uh, you're feeling like there's spiritual attack in your life, or in your marriage, or with a child, I want you to think of that person or that situation. And now we're going to ask God to do battle for us this first battle psalm is on the screens. It's from Psalm 3. You can open your eyes now and we're going to read it together. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud. And he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the ten thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. 
Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the evil one. From the Lord comes my deliverance. And now we're going to um, do battle for the city. We're going to take this from Psalm 35. So think of Wichita. And we're going to pray that the Lord do battle for us. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with your people. Fight against those who fight against us. Take up shield and buckler. Arise and come to our aid. Brandish spear and javelin against those who despise you. Make the evil one be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving him away. May his path be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord destroying him. Since they hid their net for us without cause, may ruin overtake them by surprise. May the net they hid entangle them. Rise up, O Lord, and bring your light to our city, your spirit on those who need refreshing. And now we're going to uh, do battle for our nation. We're going to use Psalm 64 for that. Hear us, O God, as we voice our prayer for the nation. Hide us from the conspiracy of the wicked, from those who put forth evil. They sharpen their tongues like swords and aim their words like deadly arrows. They shoot from ambush at the innocent man. They encourage each other in evil plans. They talk about hiding their snares. They say, who will see them? They plot injustice and say, we have devised a perfect plan. Surely the mind and heart of men are coming. But God, rise up and let your truth prevail. Expose the schemes of the wicked and lead our nation in the way of righteousness. And because we're planting a church in Macedonia, we need spiritual breakthrough there. So this will be a prayer for that nation. Picture that country and the church planting team there. We're going to bring down these walls. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Endless ruin has overtaken the nation, and darkness covers the cities. But the Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the peoples with righteousness. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you. You, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. We will proclaim to the nation what you have done. Hear our prayer and bring light to the darkness. Do battle against the oppressor. Claim the nation as your own. These are psalms, battle psalms. We do warfare with them. 
Now let's praise God, the one through whom all blessings flow. That too is a weapon, our worship. Let's stand and sing the doxology. Thank you. 